Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the book of Ephesians, which you um, graciously, through the hand of your son, Paul the Apostle, penned for us to be encouraged, to be stirred, and that it's just as relevant back 2,000 years ago as it is today. And we're so grateful for that. And as uh, Paul and Kate bring your word this morning, we pray, Lord, that we could have open hearts and ears to hear, and that you'd give us understanding and comprehension, and uh, yeah, move our hearts uh, to do what you are prompting us to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hello, guys. How are you? If I can make one little quick link for prayer. Um, this week, for the first time on Tuesday, we have, as you, many of you will know, we work extensively trying to build relationships with pastors in Stellenbosch across similar like-minded churches, every nation, the Presbyterians, the Baptists. We're all trying to work together, trying to advance God's kingdom. We're passionate about unity. We speak about unity regularly. This Tuesday, for the first time, we are gathering to have a breakfast together to talk about what it could look like if, as churches, we collabed much better around biblical justice. It's an exciting space. We've been working toward it for a number of years, and it feels like this Tuesday is going to be the very first step where we all just get to throw conversations on the table. Not every church is keen to participate. That's great. We're just taking all of them who are, and um, we are asking them to be prayerful around how we really do some of what we're trying to do in Serve Stellies, but just much bigger than that across all our churches. What does God want to do through Stellenbosch. That's the hope of the gospel, right? That it comes and changes our society, that things are actually changed because of the word of God that we hold. All right, so that's just, a, you guys know I like my little introductory sidebars. This morning, um, one of the things that we love to do in One Hope is to preach through passages of the Bible. And the reason that, or books of the Bible, the reason that we love to do that is occasionally you get to a verse that you really would rather not preach. Right? This morning, Ephesians chapter 5, 21 to 33, we're just going to do, it's already coming out, we're just going to do the first little bit of that, and this is, the title is Submission. It's Wives Submit to Your Husbands, and we're going to be speaking about that, Kate and I, together. Now, there's two ways you can approach this. You can approach this as someone being tried to be force-fed Brussels sprouts, all right? Or we can look at, I hate Brussels sprouts, so that's my, whatever your word, equivalent of that boiled, green, disgusting, mini cabbage vegetable is, all right? Or we can position our hearts in a way that we've been speaking about this whole year, where we've been speaking about flourishing and how God's word, every word of God's word is actually intended for our good. Now, for some of us, when we hear that and the word submission, they do not seem to align at all. How can it be this and flourishing? But I'm telling you, and you can actually just believe me for now, and we're going to do as best we can this morning and the weeks to come to help us understand that actually God's word leads us to flourishing. And we're going to conclude this morning in the place that even if we don't understand, this is hard, but even when we don't understand, still we get to trust a God who's good and who sees a bigger picture than we could ever see. So I'm going to read the text for us. Kate's going to come and introduce it for us, and we'll just kind of play tag team throughout the morning. I do want to warn you that we're not going to get to everything. There's so many facets to this that we just can't do it in the time that we have. And so there's going to be loads left out, but hopefully what we put on the table is really helpful for you. So verse 21, I can encourage you, please get your Bibles. If you have a Bible or a phone or a device, there's not much that's going to come up on the screen. I really would love for you to be following. We're going to do quite a lot in the book of Ephesians this morning. So just open your Bible to Ephesians. I'm using the New Living Translation, the NLT, if you want to find it on your Bible app or whatever. Verse 21 of chapter 5. And further... Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Whew. All right, that's the text that Kate and I are looking at this morning. Stefan and Riley next week are going to speak about the next part, but I'm going to read it because it needs to be read for this morning as well. 
For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scripture says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Father, as we come to an incredibly difficult text for our culture, for ourselves, for the own way of our own thinking, sometimes we find texts in the Bible that we just love and we say, oh Lord, give me more of that. Sometimes we come across these ones and it's so jarring and so difficult and yet we must still ask you, why is this so important for us in your word? Why is this good for us? How can this possibly make us flourish? And so Lord, we're going to try our best, but really what we need is your Holy Spirit to come to come and be among us this morning, to come and you wrote this, God. You wrote this, inspired this through authors a few thousand years ago. And so, Father, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come and minister into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. And that concludes my sermon. (laughs) Come on, babes. Hello, Um, I am the face of wifely submission here. (laughs) That's a pastor's wife, guys. Um, It would be pretty off and a bit disingenuous. I I would feel disingenuous to not admit this morning that this is a difficult verse. It's not that I've nailed it, and now I'm going to come tell you all about how I've nailed it. Um, It is a difficult verse, but I've grappled with it for 18 years, so it's unlikely that I'm going to unlock the whole truth for any of you this morning, but I would encourage you that in those 18 years, I have maybe not understood everything, but I have understood more and more and more of the love of God, and I am convinced more today than I have ever been that He loves us, He loves me, He wants the best for us. So when we come across these, these concepts... I would I just urge you to approach them from from that stance. Um, that it's fine that it's difficult. You don't have to beat yourself up. It's it is difficult, but he is good and he loves us and he designed us. Um, so when I was first married, um, I had the cultural difference to to contend with as well. So I came from the UK, where things were a bit different, and um, into a culture where even culturally. Um, wives submitting was was kind of culturally much more normal than where I'd grown up. And so I felt quite alone in this question. I think I'd have a lot more company if we got married now. (laughs) I'd have a few girls to chat to about this and maybe get a bit... But um, (laughs) I I didn't. And I faced a lot of of, um, women who just didn't struggle with this, Um, sort of just telling me that this is a good thing. so, um, yeah, I, I can't, I could obviously explain it more, but I think you get it. But essentially, the point is that culture has changed so much just in two decades, right? I mean, we, it's a completely different way that we view these things. Um, and culture is shifting faster and faster. I think any of us in, as parents in this room will see our children being taught very, very, very different things to, to what we were taught in school. If you looked at my life orientation books in the 80s, um, you would, <laughs> yeah, well, we were still doing the 80s books. <laughs> Mind you, Renish is still doing 80s reading books, so, you know, whatever. But um, life orientation books have had to have ad- adapt. But in my, in my books, it was mum, dad, man, woman, children. That was a family. And then, you know, if they had been updated to the 90s, then there was maybe some blended families in there as well. 
But essentially, I mean, it, it's obviously very simplistic. It wasn't quite like that. But, but now you see the way that our children are taught, and they're taught that families are different, even gender and sex isn't binary. Um, in, in, when I was growing up, um, homosexual marriage was illegal, so there was no such thing as, as a, a man married to a man or a woman married to a woman. It was just simply different. It, it was just simply not a thing. And now here we are sitting where we're teaching, you know, our children are being taught, and, we're, and we are shifting as, as a culture to believe that all of this is, is normal. And um, so we are faced with, two, we were taught different truths to our children. And the same is true across, across this issue, across um, wives and husbands, and the way that we see it. So when we are looking for truth, and truth is changing, where do we go? Well, it's my, I, I advocate that we go to the Bible, we go to scripture. But if we, for example, look back at my textbooks, we maybe would imagine the writers of, of these 80s textbooks with this very simplistic family view as being clearly maleficent, kind of agenda-pushing fascists telling us that we can't have it the other way. But actually, they were just men and women making a living, writing a book for their children about the truth of the culture. So if we, if we approach the Bible in that same way and we say, Paul, you're just a bigot, how can you possibly say this? We are missing something massive. So, if we, yeah, so basically, if we, if we are looking at this verse through our own cultural lens and only our own cultural lens, we're going to miss a lot. Um, so the, um, the context of this, if you were a woman in, in this setting, listening to Paul teach on relationships, this would be freedom for you. They were in a culture where women were um, obviously subjugated, but they were, the Jews would pray and thank God that they weren't Gentiles, dogs, or women. Women weren't allowed to give testimony in court because their witness was considered to be unreliable. And then Paul comes along and he says that men must treat their wives as, them, as themselves. They must lay down their lives for them. Um, it's not, this is, this is not, th this would be seen as freedom, and to miss that, we are missing so much. So just, when you do read this verse, especially wives, just remember that. Remember that, that the tone of this, the tone of what Paul was saying was freedom. It wasn't, um, what's the opposite of freedom? <laughs> Bondage. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, with, with that context, I um, hand over to Paul to um, exegete the passage. Good luck. <laughs> All right. Kate wasn't so keen to preach this morning. Oh, I, I, think she's, I think she's brilliant, so I just told her she had to, and she's had to, so. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's yours. There we go. For those of you who don't know me, we do like to joke a lot, so just don't take everything seriously, all right. So one of the um, powerful things that Kate is alluding to is the unity that the Bible, throughout the Bible, begins to say, not just that we're different, but also that we're unified. And so the constant teaching of Scripture is that husband and wife become, you should know it, you've been to weddings, what do you become? You become one. There's a unity, and this is the powerful part that Kate's beginning to pull out. But that's the part that I'm really going to focus on. It's Like I said, there's so many facets to this. This is one of the key ones that we decided this morning we're going to bring out. So in your Bible with me, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want to show you how actually this verse fits into the context of the book of Ephesians. So that's the first thing when you're reading any book, including the Bible. You've got to find out what is the context of where this book is written, Right? And the context is a context of unity, and I'm going to just take us on a whistle-stop tour to show you just how deeply it goes into the book of Ephesians. But if you look at chapter 1, it begins to show us how God created this impossible unity between God and man. That's effectively where this unity starts. The first great divide is that man will not submit to God. 
It's not that a wife will not submit to a husband. Man will not submit to God. That's where it all begins. And so we first see how God shows us this unity. Look in chapter 1 and verse 9, and this is what Paul writes. He says, God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan, right? Paul's saying God has this cosmic huge plan, and then he says, I'm going to tell you what that plan is, and this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. What's another word for bringing everything together? There we go. That's the word. It's unity. Go over the page for me. So Paul is saying, well, I'm, in, I'm in pages, you on your phone probably. So go to chapter 2 and verse 1. Paul is saying the plan, the big plan has always been and will always be that everything gets unified in Christ Jesus. The second thing Paul is saying is, but how does that happen? Because you're so far away from God, it's impossible. Look how chapter 2 starts. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. He couldn't state it more clearly that we're unable to be unified with God. You are dead, God is alive. You are a sinner, God is holy, right? If you've been in church, you've heard this many, many times. But he then goes on in verse 6. Just go with me to verse 6. For he raised us from the dead. Now he's speaking about how God unifies us to himself. We were separate from God, but now we are unified back to God in Jesus. He says, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Right? So God wants to unify the whole world. God unifies us back to himself in Jesus. And then we go to chapter 2 and verse 11 and we see these two groups of people. And they, they really don't like each other. They call the Jews and they call the Gentiles. And if you read scripture, you'll find this coming up loads in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in verse 11, he says, don't forget, because the Ephesians are Gentiles. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be, listen to the words he uses, outsiders. You were called, and he carries on, go down to verse 12. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship. Does this sound like unity? Not at all. It's the complete opposite. And he's arguing. He carries on. He says, you were in this world. You lived in this world, end of verse 12, without God and without hope. You were separate from these things. And then he says, but now. And we often speak about how wonderful the but now of scripture is. But now you have been unified in Christ Jesus. Okay, so you're following me. Big unity for the whole world in Jesus Christ. Everything, all place, all times, being unified in Christ. Paul says, that's the big plan. Then he says, but it's impossible to have this big plan because you're so far from God. You're dead in your sins, your trespasses. Jesus comes and does this incredible thing. Now you are united in God, but you're still at war with each other. Now he says, right, the next thing that happens through what Jesus has done is that actually you Gentiles who used to be outcasts, you used to be separate, you used to be far away from God, you're brought near to God, which is a continuation of the first point. But then he says in verse 14, for Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. What's he talking about? Batesy's got it. What's he talking about? Unity among people. Now it's between these two really, really different Ukraine-Russia. This is the, the modern metaphor for us. Then... After showing that God creates this unity, God does it. Only God could do it. God creates this unity. Second, Paul begins to speak about how we keep this unity in Christ. God gives it to us. Now Paul begins to speak about how we look after it, how we foster this unity. Verse 19, so now, says, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. 
You are members of God's family. Together we are his house. Built. You hear the language? Together. Now you are. Once you weren't, now you are. It says unity, unity, unity. And then we go into this huge shift in the book. Because of what Jesus has done, now live like this. And that shift happens in chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, he says, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Now listen to the language. Always be humble and gentle. This is not to wives or husbands. This is to every believer. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Why? Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Friends, this is why we are passionate about the churches in Stellenbosch. Not because it's a good thing to do, because God's word is passionate. Do everything. Make every effort. Yes, they're different to you. Yes, they worship differently. Yes, they have some doctrines which you really disagree with and some stuff you really annoys you, right? But make every effort. Be gentle, be humble, be patient. This is what the text is teaching us about Unity, because you have been unified and because it was so costly, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, because it cost Jesus everything, it cost him his life because it was so costly, now fight to keep that unity. Are you with me? Does it resonate? This is not, this is not, Ephesians is a book that does not give us the option for, oh, unity sounds nice, maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe it's just a special thing on One Hope Church. Maybe it's just their church thing. This is, this is not an optional thing. It's a big deal. It's make every effort. Listen how chapter 4 carries on, right? If you don't believe me yet. For there is, just count with me the number of times it says one, right? For there is one body, one spirit, that's two. Just as you have been called to, one glorious hope, that's three. There is one Lord, there is one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and living through all. You will be in church. Wait. You will be in heaven with Christians that you don't like right now and churches you don't like right now because there's only one. Seven times. That's how passionate Ephesians and Paul and God is about this unity. Next, I'm really trying to just get this into our hearts. Paul starts speaking about the gifts that are given to the church. Man, we get so hung up. Paul starts speaking about apostles and prophets and teachers. And we get so hung up. We want to have whole conferences about what a modern day apostle is. And I understand it's an important question, but it's not the point that is being made in Ephesians. The point of Ephesians is actually again about unity. He says, now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers. Listen to this. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ, this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son. And that's going to happen in heaven. So we're going to keep on seeing apostles, prophets, teachers until we get there because we haven't been unified yet, friends. And anyone who tries to tell me otherwise is delusional. The church of Christ is not yet unified into the bride that she will be. And so even in the, when we speak about these gifts, it's telling us about the gifts of a unity, 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 unity. You get the point. Now, finally, we get to our verses for today. And it starts off, submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Why do you think it's speaking about submission to one another? What happens? Let me ask it like this. What happens when in this body of people, we begin to learn how to submit one to another? Not just what I want, but what you want. Not just my way, but your way. We're patient, we're gentle, we're kind. What happens in the body? Exactly. Can someone say it a little bit louder? Unity. Thank you. Thank you, Cora Brand. Unity happens. Now, let me ask you, 
when we read and understand just how fully Ephesians is trying to take us into unity. It doesn't make any sense to suddenly rip these verses out and just think that he's speaking about instructions for marriage randomly. What is the context of Paul speaking and giving instructions to wives and to husbands? What's the context, friends? The context is to try and help us to be unified. It's a click, it's a double click on saying the whole body of Christ is supposed to be unified. Now he's going, in your marriages, be unified. Then he's going, in your families, parents, children, be unified. Then he speaks about slaves and masters. We'll translate that out into our modern day. Workers and those who work for you, employees, and, and which way I never get employees and employers. It's the easiest way to say it. Unity. That's what he's contending for the whole way through the book. And so we have to understand that that is where it's written. That gives us the context for these texts. Now, the, the relationships that Paul chooses are brilliant because they surely are our most valuable relationships. If you think about where you spend your time, where you spend your energy, how you pour out your life, do you pour out your life any place more than if you're married, in your marriage, in your family, whether you're married or not, with your brothers and sisters, with your mom and dad, that's where it comes, and in our workplace, where we, most of us spend the vast majority of our lives, apart from sleeping. He gets to these very specifically, and what is his goal in writing them? His goal is to show how we keep unity in these critical relationships. So I want to re not reinterpret, I want to reframe to help us this little part in Ephesians 5, and Kate's going to get up in a moment and say some more. But I think what Paul is saying is that if you relate in your marriage in the way that these instructions are given to you in Ephesians 5, we're going to get to them a little more explicitly just now. If you relate in your marriage in this way, you will experience unity together in a way that you won't if you throw these out. That's what I think he's doing in this text. And so then I think he's carrying on and he's saying, so would you like, it's implied, would you like unity in these critical relationships? And I think most of us would say, absolutely we would. So then listen up. That's what I think, that's my, that's my version, the PRV, Paul's International Version of Ephesians 5. But this is, for, this is Ephesians 5 in context. And this is why the consistent biblical language is two being made one. Because it's much bigger than just marriage. It's a picture of the whole church. You see, what I love about this is that diversity doesn't equal disunity. There's diversity and unity. Kate and I are fundamentally different in so many ways. She can come and spend five hours telling you about how different we are. But also, if you come and see close to our marriage, if you get to know us well, you'll see that the vast majority of the time, sometimes we're resting a little harder than others, but there's a unity and us going to the UK in a little while, there's a unity in our hearts. Where are we going to go? We're still not sure. But there's a unity in our hearts that we are waiting on Jesus together. Right? He doesn't come and say, Gentiles, you don't, you, you're no longer Gentiles. Now you are Jews. He doesn't say, Jews, you are no longer Jews. You are Gentiles. No. We keep some of our culture. We keep some of who God made us. But he does say, now you are one people. Serving one God. Seven times. One, 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 one. All right, I better get Kate up there because you guys know how I like to go on. Diversity and unity. Come and speak to us, babes. Doesn't she look lovely today? <laughs> Just push that. Um, okay, so in the context of unity, um, you see marriage, and marriage is the one relationship where God says that he sees us as one flesh. He says a man marry a woman and they will become one flesh he sees us as, as one that's not the same with any of the other relationships i'm not one with my children i'm not one with my boss i'm dot and um, yeah i'm one only with paul um and that's the same with god himself we serve a triune god we serve a god who is father son and holy spirit um and so in looking at that it gives us some freedom to address the the topic of submission because where do we see submission in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit and so do we see them as less than as having like the rubbish job in the in the Godhead 
in the, in the, in the Trinity? Or do we actually see it as an incredible gift? Like, I don't, I, yeah, I think if, um, if Jesus and the, and the Holy Spirit submit to God, then I, I'd have a hard job thinking that I could even convince myself that submission, therefore, is a bad thing. But it doesn't, that doesn't stop the fact that all the cultural bones in my body, um, hack, like they, they bristle at this, at this verse. But when I, when I hold up my understanding of the verse uh, up to the word of God, my mind is slowly renewed. And I think I'm, I really just want to be here to encourage any of you struggling with it, that slowly we will be renewed. And we will see that our understanding of the verse is, is potentially at odds with God's truth. Obviously, there'll be some people here who really don't struggle with this, and that is wonderful. Please come and help all of us who do. Um, but but I think I think just hang in there because if 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 God sees this was sorry I feel like this was monumental for my understanding this was a little this was a quite a fundamental switch is that if God sees Paul and me as one then he cannot prefer one of us over the other he just can't because he sees us as one. You can see by the sickness how much we practiced this together. All <laughs> right. So, I love what Kate's saying and just want to affirm that these have been battles hard won for us. Um, they are not easy things. We're not trying to speak about them as if they are simple things. They are complex. They take many years. We feel we've had 18 years already and even when we were dating we were talking about this and we're asking God for another 60 to keep on figuring it out and then we're going to work out the most of it in heaven one day. So... But I do, want to, I do want to point us back. I think a lot of times when I've heard this text preached, we dumb down what the text is saying to make it more palatable for our culture. And so we, it's very tempting. It would be so much easier to preach today and say, no, he's not really saying this. He's not really saying that. I want to go a little harder at it. And I know that's risky. Kate and I have been debating it all week whether I should do this. Um, I do want to go a little harder at it because I think actually sometimes we need to see the reality of what God's word is saying. And even when that's really offensive, I'm not trying to offend you, but even when it's offensive, it forces us to then engage with it and say, how can this be God's word? And I think that leads us foster to a healthy place than if we just somehow live for 20 years thinking, well, actually maybe it's not really about submission and it's just about mutual submission, all right? So I'm going to help us if I can with that. Please feel free to walk out the back, but just know the back gate is closed um, for security reasons, is the truth. But... Um, so, let's do it like this. Verse 21 makes it clear that the context is always mutual submission. This is what it says. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there is always a one another submitting happening in every relationship. Even more important than that, is the context is always in ultimate submission to Jesus Christ. So no matter what your relationship is, it's always in ultimate submission to Jesus Christ. One tiny little practical thing that comes out here is what happens if you're in a relationship with a husband who asks you to sin or to violate your conscience. Very clearly, Scripture teaches you can go and have a look up in Acts chapter 5, and verse 29, it's about the apostles and they being asked to do something that they feel is against what God has asked them to do. And Peter very simply says, we must obey God rather than any human authority. And that stands true in any conversation that we have around submission. Submission ultimately is to Jesus. However, as convenient as it would be to leave it there, Ephesians 5.22 is talking about more than simply the mutual submission relationship that is expected of all people. This is even clear as you read further on. So in the, in the weeks to come, we're going to be doing parenting, we're going to be doing work, etc. And all the time, if you look at the pattern, you'll see, and this is going to, where it's going to get uncomfortable, but you'll see that for, Paul first addresses the person under authority, and then he addresses the person in authority and speaks about how they are supposed to care for or look after the person under authority, right? So you see it here with wives and husbands, but you see it as well in the next section with parents. 
He speaks about the children first, and then he speaks about the parents' responsibility. Then he does it with slaves or employees. Is that right? Employees. And then he speaks about employers. So he speaks about, and he does that consistently throughout the text. And so I can't pretend that he's not doing the same thing here. You can see it. It's the pattern that he's using. And so we must honestly read the text as uncomfortable as it sounds to Western ears and as uncomfortable as it makes us feel. Um, I think I've said enough on that. So the Bible is making a case that the wife in a married relationship submits to her husband in a way that a husband does not reciprocally submit to a wife. Is that clear? Okay. Clear is the, is the question, not nice. <laughs> Just is it there? But simultaneously, as I've said, that there's mutual submission, that both of you are in submission to Jesus Christ. And in all of this, the big context I was trying to paint for us just now, that all of it is for what purpose? Unity. It's to unify us, including in this most precious, very tight, earthly relationship. So, with all that in mind, we're going to go through the text a little bit more thoroughly. Chapter, two, chapter 5, verse 22. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. What does the word submit mean? It means to allow to take the lead. And let that sink in a little bit. I'm just going to shield myself. Allow to take the lead. It means to be under authority of. To be under authority to. This is how the message says it. Wives, understand and support your husbands in ways that show you support, that show your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church. This is where we're going to go next week in a much more detailed way. Not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, wives should likewise submit to their Husbands, husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not by getting. Beautiful. Carries on. Wives, submit to, the ESV says, your own husband. I'm just trying to help us here with this. What does this text actually mean? Your own means you do not submit to all men. No one. It means that when you're an adult, not even your father and your mother retain a submission relationship over you. Do you want to honor them? Absolutely. You submitted to them? No, you are not. All right? This is specific and it discusses marriage and two people. This is the place where we see this command given into that place. That's my hard work done. Kate's going to come and speak a little around submission. Okay, so um, why do we struggle with the word submit so much? And like I said, there'll be people who in this room who, who won't, who will see it for the blessing that, that God clearly sees it as. But for those of us who do struggle with it, why? Um, I advocate that it's because of our cultural lens. It's because of the way that we have been taught culturally to view this word. Um, and of course, men have and and cultures have used this verse in and out of the church to abuse power and to subjugate, to subjugate women. Um, and we can't, yeah, we can't deny that it is it's a fact. But but just because something has been misused, it doesn't mean that we have to throw it out completely. Um, as I think that we're seeing now, as as tables turn within our culture, we're seeing that the like equal and opposite is not the win. Um, so yeah, I think this verse has been taken out of context by people maybe who came to this to this talk, but missed next week. By the way, we've passed a law and it's illegal not to come next week. If you've listened to this, you have to come and listen to the the men's the the husbands ones as well. Um, so, it, so it 
some of the ways I feel that that submission is maybe cast as a as a dirty word is, or that leadership is is better, is that from day one we celebrate leadership in children. We we celebrate it with badges and stickers and um, blazers and ties and academic badges and all of that. This is all children leading the way. You have done well. You have shown initiative. You have done X, Y, and Z. Um, it is it's a human thing to revere people. We want we, and we in the Old Testament they cried out for a king, which God was reluctant to give them. He he is more interested actually in in following, um, us following him. Um, but as as a culture we we celebrate these things. It kind of it helps us get ahead, I guess, um, from an evolutionary point of view maybe. Um, Cultural evolution, I'm not going into evolution, evolution. Um, <laughs> um, but but in, in, a, in a place where we are edifying those things, um, then it's not a surprise um, that we, that, you know, when we are told, it's, when we're told that just because we are born a certain gender or certain, certain se I can't remember which one's which, sex or gender, <laughs> they're both the same. I don't know. Oh, dangerous ground, dangerous ground. But, um, <laughs> Because we are born man or woman, therefore we will become husband or wife, we don't get to contend for who leads the relationship. Everywhere we look in culture, we would see that that would be, you know, um, considered archaic or at least old-fashioned. Um, but our creator created us in his image. And we were created male and female. Yes, they're binary. Um, and he made us for these roles. Our loving father made these roles, created us for them as an example of him as a, as a, as a God and, and his relationship between him and, and the church. We are designed to fulfill those roles as a picture of his beautiful love for us. So, um, yeah, with, with that basis, Paul will now carry on. <laughs> Thank you, babe. <laughs> Sorry, it is a little jarring when we are switching, but it's just, I think it's really powerful to hear both sides, hopefully hearing both of that. Now we get to um, the verse that is, I think, probably the pivotal one that we want to speak into this morning. We're not going to spend much time on the rest of it, unfortunately. Like I said, you've got to pick which aspect you're going at. But it says, for wives, verse 22, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And I just want to zero in for a little bit on what that as to the Lord means. Michael Eaton, who's a very famous scholar, unfortunately he's passed away, so you can't even go and shout at him for the stuff he's written. But he says, the wife is not to act one-sidedly in anything. She consults her husband on all major decisions. A Christian husband should not stifle his wife, of course not, that's what he says, or act insensitively. This is the part I want us to listen to. On the other hand, the wife does not submit to her husband only on condition that he is sensitive as she would like him to be. He may not even be a Christian at all. She follows her husband's lead, generally speaking, as something she does for the Lord Jesus Christ, not as something she does for her husband because he is such a deserving person. Right, now I want to get very practical in this part of the preach. As you know, this is what we like to do. We don't like to just theorize. I want to suggest that this is a very difficult thing, which is also potentially extremely beautiful. Extremely beautiful. So I want to push us through a little bit of a practical grid. What happens when it gets very, very tough in a marriage relationship? We take this issue and we say, all right, let's hypothetically... Your husband is leading you into an area that you disagree. Not sin, but he's leading you in a direction. This is where the tacky really hits the tar. And you're looking at this verse and you're going, how do I follow him there? That is a stupid idea, right? How do you do that? You discuss it with your husband, hopefully not telling him that you think it's a stupid idea, but using more subtle language. And you have it out as a couple, as couples do. If those of you have been in our home many times, you'll sometimes see Kate and I doing this. We disagree. You all disagree. And you've got to figure out, is this just a preference? 
who wants to watch which movie? Or is this actually a leadership issue? Is there something where in this guy's heart, he's saying, I feel compelled by God to lead our family in this direction. And this is a little throwaway comment. But ultimately, as a husband in the home, it doesn't just come with the the wife submitting to me, it also comes with God holding me to account for leading the home. There's a responsibility that comes with that, just as it would come in any leadership position that we look at in the world, where there's responsibility for people who are submitted to in a workplace that is not there for those who don't, right? But I don't want to digress on that. But what option do you have? What option do you have in this practical setting? The first thing you need to ask is, is my husband asking me to go into an area of sin. If he is, we go back to Acts. We follow God, not our husband, right? Especially if we have an unsaved or one spouse believer, one spouse is not. But let's, let's eradicate that one, all right? So you've, it's not sin. So your options are as follows. I can see it. You've got three options. The first one is you disagree, and so you refuse to go along with it. Point blank. I'm not doing this. We're not doing that. What is this cause in the marriage? Any married people have experience of this? <laughs> Tension, conflict, divorce. Sometimes if it's a big enough, if it's a big enough issue, husband goes and invests the money, decides he's got a great idea, Bitcoin. He's like five years behind the curve. Read an article from 2009. Invests the life savings. I'm telling you, this is real. The number one cause of divorce is financial. It's the number one cause if you go and look at it. How does it practically affect the marriage and the home? If the wife says, I won't follow you. What happens in that home? And let me ask you the, let me ask you the Ephesians question. Is unity maintained? Absolutely not. Okay. So that's an option. The second option is you go along with it, but man alive, you grumpy. And doesn't he know every second of every day that you think he's made the wrong call? And on it goes. And lo and behold, if that call does not work out, no commandant. Okay, we asked the same three questions. What is that approach cause? How does it practically affect the marriage? How does it practically affect the children in the home? How does this work? Right? And we ask the Ephesians question, how is unity maintained? Can you be unified and take this position? I want to suggest that the biblical model is number three, which and oh, guys, this, I, I wish we could do a whole series on this. Honestly, maybe we should come back at some point and do a whole series because it's so much stuff in here. But we, have, we don't check our brains out at the door. We're not talking about doormats. We're, not talk, we're talking about jointly trying to find unity, fighting for direction as a couple, but sometimes on an occasion reaching a point where you go like, I really think I've still got to do this. That's the godly way to get there. Unfortunately, many people are in relationships where that's not the case, where it's far more broken, where the husband is far more domineering, where it's just like, this is the way we're going to do it. Why? Well, because I want to. And won't you bring me some sandwiches? <laughs> that's the reality that many of us are facing. Now, the Bible makes provision for that because it says we still as tough. I'm not, I told you right up front, this is an extremely difficult way to look at the text, but it's potentially extremely, extremely beautiful. So my contention that in a godly marriage is that you employ joint wisdom. Both of you are going to God. Both of you are crying out. Both of you are praying. Both of you are God saying, God, help us. You engage in godly conversation, mature conversation, not throwing your toys out the cot, not the husband, not the wife, both of you, mature conversation. You throw your toys out the cot. You say sorry. You come back to the drawing board. You agree to outside counsel. Hey, babes, do you think we should ask someone to help us? This is so helpful. Husbands, if you lead this, let's go and ask some other people. Maybe they also had some kids. Maybe they also know about Bitcoin. Maybe they also have some ideas of how we could do this in our marriage. You go and ask other people. But what happens after all of those things if you still disagree? 
What this text in Ephesians is teaching us is that now you get to choose as to the Lord. As to the Lord. You have, as a wife, you have the privilege of following into a wrong decision, an incorrect decision in your marriage, in your mind, with grace, with love, while honoring your husband, while respecting your husband in mouth and in heart. And here's the beautiful part. And Jesus Christ himself will reward you and honor you for doing that, even if time proves that the decision was actually bad. What an option, right? You get to do it as to the Lord Jesus. It's not cheap second place. It really isn't cheap second place. I actually think this is the accurate lens on the whole passage. I think the whole book of Ephesians is taking us to the point. Can I just say this? As a husband, I am not best positioned to decide who should lead our marriage. I'm not the one saying, wife, submit to me. I'm not choosing that either. As a husband, I'm turning to God and I'm saying, it's not my choice. You're the one who says that I'm best positioned in your understanding of flourishing and your bigger picture view. And the wife is in exactly the same boat. This is the trouble with this text is it's like, I understand someone has to lead, but why does it have to be the guy? Why is it a gender issue? And again, we point back to unity. You can start to see this practically, how it would work out. What if you do have two people and they both feel they should lead the whole time in a marriage? And God has made no call. And God has not said one should lead. And so we have to just bow our knee and go, Father, this does not make sense sometimes, but we trust you. So what do we do? I do my best to lead my wife. Much more of that coming next week from Stephen and Riley. But really, I too have to do that as unto the Lord. I don't get to just lead Kate when she wants to follow. I don't get to just lead her because it's nice and it's comfortable. I get to lead her through Kate as unto the Lord Jesus. And in exactly the same way, I think in some way Scripture is asking us to do different things, but with exactly the same end goal. In the same end goal, my wife, Kate, submits to my leadership because she really is doing it as unto the Lord, because it's His instruction, not mine. I'm not demanding it. Christ is demanding it. Don't use that in an argument, that line. <laughs> It's not me, babes, it's Jesus. He's telling you what to do. And my, my kind of closing contention is that when you see it like that, I'm not for a moment suggesting that it's easy. Not at all. We know it's not. But I'm suggesting that it's potentially so beautiful. Let me ask my, my three, four questions again. What happens, practically, what happens in a home where this is employed. What does that marriage look like? Even though the decision may be wrong, sometimes even especially when the decision is wrong, you can see love and grace flow in a way that doesn't flow when the Bitcoin did check out and you bought a new house, right? You see it sometimes more when the decision is wrong. What does this response from a wife cause in the home? Peace. Love, care, respect. Is unity maintained? Difficult unity, but absolutely. And hopefully with a godly husband, there's a humility that comes in and goes, I was wrong. I made a mistake. I'm sorry I didn't listen to you, babes. Next time. Ethereum. <laughs> That's another type of Bitcoin for those of you who don't. A little side note on this to our singles. I have a whole section here. We, we're actually going to do a whole preach at the end of the series on singleness. And just we just feel like the church is getting this 
really mixed up and, and wrong in so many ways. But just a tiny little note on here. If you are single and you have a desire to be married and you are a woman, be careful how you choose. Be careful how you choose. Because if you hold to God's word that a husband must lead you, you better be sure that the guy that you're choosing to marry you is going to lead you in a godly way or you're going to buckle in for the long haul. All right? Just a little friendly warning. See you in 20 years. <laughs> See, our goal, our goal is so often getting the right decision. This marriage, we need to get the right decision. Kate and I are feeling it. Where are we going in the UK, Lord? Show us the town. Show us the place. We need it now. One night when I was overseas, um, those of you who don't know, sorry, if you knew my wife and I are handing over um, the leadership of this church in the next coming months. Our elders are going to continue. They're going to be leading. Um, we've got some news coming about that somewhere soon. Very exciting. Um, but that's just a tiny bit of context. But I was praying one night while I was away, and I, was, I woke up, and I was desperate for God to tell me where we're going. And I went, and I was praying for ages and just saying, God, almost like I'm not going to let you go until you tell me where we're going, like that woman pressing through the crowd trying to get to Jesus. And I felt like so righteous. I'm going to ask God. I'm desperate. And um, in the midst of that, I just felt God say, man, you're desperate for the wrong thing. You're desperate for direction. You're desperate for strategy. I want you to be this desperate to trust me. Oh, it's a hard word, Lord. It's a hard word. But I think God, in our process, it feels like God is so much more interested in forming us. He's so much more interested in sanctifying us. He's so much more interested in, in unity. Hard won, beautiful, fought over unity. There's a sweetness when you've had to fight for this thing. He's far more interested in it being as to the Lord. I've got tons more I want to say. We are out of time. I'm going to ask Kate to just come and, and close out for us, and she's going to read a section from this, this brilliant book as well. Um, and we can, uh, uh, sorry, I haven't got at all past verse 22, but it does feel like something of what God wants to speak to us today. As to the Lord. We can do some other series some other time on the rest of the verse. But won't you come and finish us off there, my love? Can I have a hallelujah? <laughs> um, okay, so I just want to close with, um, with one final point, essentially, that um, jostling for position within a marriage is, is possibly my least favorite um, characteristic of myself. When I'm, when I'm jostling for position with Paul, it's really not about me and him. It's, it's about how I look at Jesus and I see how much more dignified he was in his submission. And um, one, one thing that practically helps me when I'm struggling is um, actually a, a good friend of mine, um, Jen Robinson, who is Kirsten's mom. Um, she used to live next door to us in the early days of our marriage, and I was, she would let me just deposit on her all the, the difficulties that I had, and then she would um, gently lead me um, somewhere better. And so the one day I had told her all about what had happened and this and this, and Paul's trying to make me do this or, you know, something. She saw through it all, and she just said to me, Kate, you know, you know what you've got to do. You've got to get yourself on the altar. And she said, but you are a living sacrifice, so you are going to want to wriggle off. And so for me, in terms of I see Jesus submitting himself to God, doing what he you know, didn't want to do, let this cup pass from me, but your will be done in those moments, just trying to um, unto the Lord, not because Paul's always right and he's always got the best ideas, although he does sometimes, um, but because because Jesus did it first. So in closing, I'm going to read, um, yes, I'm going to read from this book. It was Born Again This Way. It's by um, Rachel Gilson. It's actually a book on her struggle with um, same-sex attraction, but it talks a lot about um, uh, gender and and yeah what we're talking about today and submission wives husbands etc in case you missed it <laughs> should have just said that <laughs> um in a similar way 
when God's words about sexuality are not self-evident today, when they strike us as repressive, who will we consider more trustworthy, ourselves or God? As a new Christian at Yale, this was not an idle question for me. It pressed on a main hope for my future. It affected defining experiences of my life thus far. Could I trust God with even this, with such a vulnerable, important part of my life? In Jesus Christ, I found my answer, yes. I could trust God because in Christ he had proven himself trustworthy. After all, no one made him leave the glories of heaven. He was under no obligation to save us, to save me. He would be just as holy and good if I stood before him and was condemned in my sin. I had lived the first, few, the first two decades of my life in arrogance, in lies, in cheating. I was cruel, selfish, and vain. Never did I think about the good of others, especially not ahead of my own. What did the God of perfect love owe a person like that? Exactly nothing. If I had gotten to the judgment seat in all my sin and seen it exposed for what it was and is in the light of his goodness, I would have agreed with him. You have to condemn me. You would be unjust not to. We feel the righteousness of a true criminal getting his due, so it would have been with me. But instead, Jesus chose to come and rescue, to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19 verse 10. The difficulty, in, the difficulty of the life he chose to live, even before his difficult death, showed how much we were worth to him. To take on a great cost shows great commitment and love. He was born to poor parents in the backwater of an oppressed, occupied country. His life wasn't spent traveling the world, seizing the moment. He wandered from place to place without a permanent home. His friends were often slow to understand and quick to bicker, and in the end they abandoned him. He was hounded by the religious elite, who should instead have worshipped him. Despite the many difficulties, he poured out his life in love. He looked with compassion on the crowds that chased him when he was exhausted. He spoke tenderly to women, healing and encouraging them. He took the risk to touch the courageous, to, to touch the contagiously sick and to bless the outsider. He wasn't afraid to be seen with the sexually immoral women or the morally corrupt tax collectors, but accepted them and set them free. Jesus' life was exhausting, sorrowful, right to the end as he submitted to shameful trial and execution. Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel, was strung up naked with criminals, covered in gentle spirit, it's covered in Gentile spit. He came of his own will to stand in for the debts of his people and pay it all. God showed that he accepted the payment by raising Jesus triumphantly from the dead. All are invited to exchange their sin for righteousness and live forever with him. This was my anchor when the seas got stormy. I was free to obey before I understood because of who Jesus is and who he had shown himself to be for me. Anything he said to me was for my good, even if I couldn't make, it, make out how. I could build my life on his goodness and love. I could echo the words of the disciple Peter uttered as dozens of erstwhile followers abandoned Jesus because his teaching was so hard. That in this man I had come to believe and know the Holy One of God. He alone had the words of life, and that was enough, even with my remaining questions. Jesus was trustworthy. Nothing he said would be arbitrary or a lie, but true and for the sake of blessing. And so that little piece in that book for us just beautifully summed up some of where we are because it feels like this morning we can maybe answer one or two little things in your heart, but really our experience has been that this is a massively long journey of learning to trust a good father when we can't understand some of what he's asked us to do yet, or it doesn't feel like we can understand what he's asked us to do. And so what uh, Rachel is so beautifully pointing to in that book is that we can, did you get that little line? We have, she said, I had the freedom to obey before I understood, because I understood how good Jesus was and what he had done for me. And that's, I think, the place where we'd like to land this morning. We're going to take communion together, but I want to encourage you to the freedom to obey when you have not understood yet, when you're on that journey of trying to understand because you look at Jesus and you go, man, if you did that for me, I know that somehow I'm missing how this can be good for me, but somehow it must be 
I want to pray for us. I want to encourage you to come and get communion. I want to ask you to do it alone today, or if you're in a couple, do it as a couple. Um, And I ask you to do that because I want us to focus on this aspect as we close of Jesus. I don't understand, or I do understand, or I understand in part, but I ask you to help me see again what you have done for me so that it helps me to obey even when I don't understand. Does that make sense? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for journeys and for how you lead us gently and graciously. Thank you most of all for the example of Jesus, the submitted one, no less valuable, no less valuable, no less worth. Thank you that you see us as one with our wives and with our husbands. You see us as one. But Jesus, we see in you the most profound submission and so we all model our lives on the same thing we want to be submitted as a church to jesus we want to be submitted as husbands and wives and singles and students and everyone in this room our lives to you lord of all lord king we submit to you Father, take our bumbling words and trying to get this across and press it in very real ways into current marriages in the room, into future marriages in the room. We pray that your word would come and speak so clearly. And I pray, Lord, that the application that spills out into every type of relationship we have, that your spirit would come and make that alive to us in Jesus' name. Amen.